Open up your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. That's where we are. The theme is Rejoice, the Lord is King. We'll be dealing with a passage found in chapter 3, verse 17 to 4, verse 1. This section, Paul now reaches the climax of the third chapter before he transitions into his final exhortations in chapter 4. And the climax brings the reward of heaven forward as a motivating factor to persevere under the present circumstances and gives a warning against falling away. That's the sum of the passage. So let's read together from Philippians chapter 3, verse 17 to 4, verse 1. This is the word of God. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with mind set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him to subject all things to Himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Let's pray. Father, grant us now by your word, through your spirit, to consider the passage before us, the warning that it sets before us, as well as the great encouragement for those who persevere. Let us be encouraged as believers. Let us be convicted for those who are wavering and doubting in their faith. And let us be built up into one body, to the glory of Christ we pray, amen. How is your walk with the Lord? How is your walk with the Lord? I remember the words clearly as if it were yesterday. I was a fresh believer, and the question posed was from an older mentor. The question seemed strange, however. My older friend, Ian, was used to dealing with young adults who were raised in the Christian faith. I was an outsider. Christian language of this type seemed strange. However, I promptly answered, good, I think. It wasn't until many years later that I I reflected deeper on the meaning of these words. How is your walk with the Lord? It is the language of discipleship, and the metaphor is taken from an ancient practice that is long forgotten in our fast-paced, technologically driven world. In the ancient world, disciples literally walked with their mentors. It was a slow-paced journey. They went from town to town walking. And so they walked and talked along the way. They lived with them. They observed their conduct and doctrine up close. Wherever the rabbi would go, 
the disciples would follow them. Now, Ian was the closest I ever came to a mentoring relationship that remotely resembled this practice. He invited me into his home to observe his conduct with his family and spoke to me of his faith often. And without knowing it, I was being mentored. I walked with Ian. And in so doing, Ian helped me walk with the Lord. Have you ever walked with someone this close before? I believe there is a great mentoring crisis in the church today. We rarely observe the lives of all the Christians up close. In our self-sufficient age, we tend to figure things out on our own. In our technologically driven age, we tend to walk with Google before we walk with anyone else. But Paul is going to bring this ancient practice into our text and encourage us to find godly examples and walk with them. Do life with them. Spend time with them. Slow down. Yes, real people that you can touch, that you can hug, that you can embrace, that you can talk to, that you can smell. (laughs) Not virtual people across the screen. Real people in your congregation, among one another. Paul is going to employ the verb to walk twice in this section, once in the positive and once in the negative, as he encourages Christians to walk with the Lord through this process. The title for this sermon is The Joy of Walking with Fellow Citizens, and we will consider the passage in three points. Firstly, walk with fellow citizens. Secondly, Be careful of traitors. And thirdly, help is on the way. So firstly, walk with fellow citizens. The important point of this first section is this. We will imitate those whom we follow. You know that? Human beings imitate people. We imitate our heroes. We imitate those we herald as leaders. We are an imitation group of people. That's what we always do. Starts from little children. Like little children often imitate their parents, which is a scary thought, right? You know, see the problems with parents, you've watched the children. <laughs> no, that's just a kidding. But it's true. Children imitate their parents. They pick up things from life and manner of their parents and conduct in life, and they imitate those things early on. Later in life, they will start to imitate their heroes. They will start to imitate others around, those whom they want to be like or emulate. Sport heroes, perhaps politicians, perhaps movie stars. But we are by nature creatures that imitate. We're not very original. Sorry to blow your bubble on that. (laughs) But we are imitation beings. That is why Paul urges the believers to walk with fellow citizens. (laughs) Now I say walk with fellow citizens as the first point because verse 20 states... Our citizenship is in heaven, referring to believers. We have a citizenship. We belong to the heavenly kingdom. That's what you are. We have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit of Christ and brought into Christ. You have become a citizen of heaven. And then in verse 17, which is the focus of this first section, Paul says, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. So that's our focus This verse 17 here in our first section. Let us unpack what Paul means by saying, Join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. 
Now, the imperative of this first section is join in imitating me. The literal rendering is something like this. Become fellow imitators of me, with the imperative being become. You are to change. I don't know if you don't know this, but uh, we are changing beings. We don't stay the same. We are not um, immutable like God is immutable, who never changes, but we ourselves become. We, uh, in philosophy, there's a great study in terms of right from Aristotle through to uh, present time, what does it mean that we are becoming creatures, that we are changing, transforming? And the very simple thing is that we are not the same person from one day to the next day. So many people find this problematic in marriage, for example. One day they wake up and they say, well, the person I married is not the same person they were when I married them. Well, that's obvious. <laughs> people change. We become. We transform. We become different people as we go on. I think Tim Keller is the one who said it, that if you uh, the moment you get married to a person, you go to sleep. The next morning, you're married to a different person. We are changing beings. And so here, Paul is using this imperative to become. You are to become like something. And he is stating this in the imperative, saying that you are to be fellow imitators with him or of him. Now, this word, this compound verb, fellow imitators, is used only once in the New Testament. And it's used here. And we have to ask, what is he meaning? The question is, are they fellow imitators together with Paul? Is that what Paul's saying? Together with me, become a fellow imitator? And that Paul is urging them to join him in imitating Christ? Or is Paul urging them all together as fellows to imitate him? Now, there's no need to choose. The commentators like to draw these dichotomies. It's a, it's a both and. Paul is saying... Join me in imitating Christ. And he's also saying, as a collective body, imitate me as I imitate Christ. That's exactly what he tells the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians, Corinthians 11 verse 1. He says this, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So Paul's not being arrogant here. Some people think this is a prideful statement. Hey, imitate me. Follow me. Look at me. I mean... He's not being arrogant. He's saying, as I strive to imitate Christ and living this godly example before you, so imitate me, for I'm imitating Christ, and you all should be imitating me as I follow Christ and one another. If there are those among you who are following and pursuing Christ to be like him, you ought to use them as present examples for what it means to live like Christ. We don't have the physical presence of Jesus anymore. So what do we have? Spirit-filled, fallen creatures that strive to imitate the Lord. This is what Paul's getting at. And this is why he urges them in the next section of the sentence to keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Now Paul is turning the congregation's attention to faithful members of the local church of whom Epaphroditus is already given as an example in chapter 2. Remember, we looked at Timothy and Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus, one of their own, uh, held up to emulate this example. Epaphroditus, your fellow soldier. And so there's already someone that Paul has held up from within the congregation that they ought to strive to be like. But Paul is saying, imitate those who imitate us. Or walk like those who walk like us. The term to walk in this passage has the metaphorical sense of a person's conduct or way of life. 
It is frequently used in the Old Testament to describe a person's walk in the ways of the Lord, to walk in the ways of God. For example, Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 32 to 33, where Moses is giving the law to the second generation of the Israelites who now will enter into the promised land. He says this at the end of that passage of giving the law to them, You shall be careful, therefore, to do as the Lord your God has commanded you. You shall not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. You shall walk in all the way that the Lord your God has commanded you, that you may live and that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land that you shall possess. You are to conduct your way of life according to the law of God, so that you may live well. This concept was taken straight from the Old Testament and was developed by the rabbis of the first century in this rabbi-disciple relationship. Disciples were to walk with their teachers, literally observing their life and observing their conduct and observing their doctrine because their doctrine was grounded in the interpretation of the Old Testament law. That's how disciples would learn how to walk in the ways of the Lord by emulating their teachers. In the New Testament, we note that this is we note that the disciples of John did exactly that. They surrounded John, they lived with John. But the most obvious example is the disciples of Jesus. We see this very clearly in Jesus' own relationship with his disciples. One of the most notable statements in the Gospels is found in Luke 6, verse 40, where Jesus says, A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. This is the goal of discipleship. The point of discipleship is that you end up being like or imitating your teacher, their life and their doctrine. And this is why Paul urged these Christians to join in imitating me and to keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. You are to look around, (laughs) young people, (laughs) let me tell you, Look around, get off your phones, get off YouTube, get off all those great helpful things that are out there. There's nothing wrong with listening to sermons online or or, or figuring things out on your own. These are good things. But if you're doing that to the exclusion of finding people in your own congregation whom you should be hanging out and learning from, we are missing out of a very big and crucial key to discipleship in the church. I think this is a big problem. So what do you look out for? What can, you, can we have something in Scripture that shows us what we should look for in people that emulate this example? Well, we have. The simple answer is that they are godly examples, right? We want to follow godly examples. In chapter 2, verse 5 to 11, they are those who model the example of Christ's humility through sacrificial living. This is Paul's primary example given in this letter. And then he uses three examples of regular people who do the same, himself, Timothy, and Epaphroditus. So there's your first example given in Philippians is those who model their lives after Christ through humility and sacrificial living. But then we have other lists too in the rest of Scripture that we can turn to as well. And three lists come to mind that are really good to look at. The first is the love list that's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 47. 
crucial list. The second list is the list of spiritual fruit found in Galatians 5, verse 22 to 23. And then the list of elder and deacon qualifications found in 1 Timothy 3, verse 1 to 13, which you should be reading through already in preparation for this evening. So we're not going to address that one because I assume that you've been reading that. It's a long list. There's many things in there, but you should be reading that in preparation for the meeting and especially our voting on a deacon that's coming. So you should be familiar with that one. But let's look at the other two lists. 1 Corinthians 13 verse 47, that list of genuine love. You see, in this list, 1 Corinthians 13 verse 47, the characteristics of genuine love, and I would say the characteristics of what mature Christian love ought to look like is given to us. The list states this very simply. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Now, there is not a Christian in this church that's going to live this list out perfectly. We're all going to fail at certain points on this list. But the question is, is your life characterized predominantly as you grow in holiness by this list? Is this more evident in who you are as a person? Can you see growth in that? And if you're an older believer, do you reflect upon your life and say, hey, I look at this list and I'm seeing that I'm growing in patience and kindness. Are you being challenged by this nature of love in this list right here? And young people, when you look at someone that's supposed to emulate godliness inside of the church, are you looking to a list like this and saying, is this the kind of person that I want to follow? It's very important that you follow good examples. Paul wrote it. Bad company corrupts Good character. Even in the church. <laughs> you want to see what lists there are that describes a godly lifestyle and look at those lists, jot them down, follow them, read them, and say, that's the kind of person I'm looking for to mentor me. And how do you know if a person's such a person? Well, you're going to spend time with them, Right? We don't have time in our 21st century context. But we need to make time. It's interesting that this list in Corinthians is truly a contrast between the impatient, boastful, and arrogant culture of Corinth. If you read this list and you go to the study of the background of Corinth and its culture and its context, you will understand that this list really is a stark contrast. It was so clear that if a person walked like this, they would be very different from the culture in which they are. And let me tell you, <laughs> the Corinth culture has got very similarities to the U.S. culture. Where in the ancient in, in embedded in the culture, in the secular culture of the U.S., is, is this impatience, this boastful, this arrogant, this proud, this I'll do it my way, this John Wayne culture, right? So there, godliness really is in contrast. 
So you can see someone against the backdrop of a secular culture if they live these things out, and those are the people you pursue. The second list is the spiritual fruit of regenerate believers found in Galatians 5, verse 22 to 23. Now, this is true of all believers, right? And it's ever-increasing fullness to those who are being filled with the Holy Spirit. It is true that we can grieve the Holy Spirit. So while this list is true of all believers that have the Spirit, it is still true that in some believers, this might be just a, a mere flicker to show that there is light. But in true godly leaders that we want to follow and emulate, this list here will shine forth brighter and brighter and brighter as they strive to live a life of holiness and righteousness by the power of the Spirit. And this list is the fruit of Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against, against such things there is no law. Notice once again, in a culture of pride where the loudest voices are often the ones most often followed, those who emulate these can be easily overlooked. It's not someone that puts themselves forward. Now, that doesn't mean that quiet people are the most godly among us. <laughs> Sometimes the most quiet people can suffer with the greatest deep of pride as well. And they look so humble because they never speak out loud. And they, It's not true that just being quiet is it. But it does mean that the person, especially when you're faced with conflict, their character will be made known. Do they strive and emulate these virtues that is given for us? Now, there's no person that's going to do this perfectly. We're going to waver, we're going to fall. But it's got to be a life characterized by these virtues. I remember when I was a young man, just reading now Matthew chapter 6, and you know, there's doing your righteousness in public to be seen by all and your prayers out loud. When I was a young believer, new believer, fresh believer, um, I was being mentored by my friend Ian, a really godly man, and I was drawn to him. But, but there was another man in our church, big man, you know, he was over six foot four tall, loud, and he would always say the most beautiful prayers. Oh, and I said, man, I want to hang out with that guy. So the opportunity came to house it for him one day. And I said, hey, I'll house it for you. For you. They were going away on a holiday. And he said, okay, be at my house on this Saturday at this time. And, and, and I got there early. He was drunk. And he spoke to his daughter. I can no mention speak to a dog. You're swearing at her. And I remember that time there, just because they look like that in, in the public sphere, doesn't mean they are like that when they're at home. You gotta get into each other's houses, you gotta get into your mentors' homes to see what their lifestyle is like if you wanna follow them and spend time with them. But you gotta find someone, and they're not gonna be perfect, but you know what? It's going to be someone that overall is striving for or emulates these characteristics. Friends, these are marks of mature, spiritual, and spirit-controlled citizens of heaven. And if you make it a habit to walk with people such as this, 
you will find the joy of walking with fellow citizens. Your joy will increase. Your own lifestyle will be enriched. You will see what it's like to strive against sin, against the world, the flesh, and the devil from a real human example of someone that's been regenerated by the Spirit of Christ. So walk, walk, it's imperative. Walk with fellow citizens, first point. Second point, be careful of traitors. Be careful of traitors. One of the great metaphors Paul employs is that, like the city of Philippi was to Rome, the local church is an outpost of heaven. So you see the local churches. Philippi was, everyone that belonged to Philippi was citizens of Rome. So those who belong to the local church, just like Philippi, are citizens of heaven. It's an outpost. The church is an outpost of heaven. Now, Philippi was the place where many of the great Roman generals retired, and as a result, where many successful soldiers who had earned their freedoms and made their fortunes lived. It's a place where soldiers, generals retired, and so it was a very patriotic city. However, it also had the danger of becoming a threat to Rome itself if an uprising were to take place. Imagine a city where all your best generals and best soldiers lived. All of them. And all of a sudden, the government comes into power that they don't like. That's a dangerous city, right? So the city governing authorities had to keep a very keen eye out for traitors against Rome. They had to watchful for this. Now, Paul turns his attention to traitors among the citizens of heaven here in verse 18. Christians need to keep a keen eye and watch out for traitors of the citizen of heaven in our midst. Listen to verse 18. For many, says Paul, many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Hmm. Now we must note that Paul employs the same verb as above, to walk, in his description of this group of people. In other words, their conduct or way of life had become characterized as enemies of the cross of Christ. Now, Paul could be referring to regular people who have fallen away from the faith, but it seems that Paul is referring to more notable people who haven't merely fallen away, but are vocally and deliberately now enemies of the cross of Christ. It seems that is what he's referring to. In the 21st century language, these are those who are vocally and publicly deconstructing their faith they once held to. I don't know, you might have heard of this new term out there, deconstructing your faith. A very popular term now. Famous advocates are Joshua Harris, you know, author of Our Kiss Dating Goodbye, Abraham Piper, John Piper's son. All of them are vocally and publicly denouncing their faith and are making no small fortune from their publicity on the matter they have. And they have amassed huge followings of other people that also are deconstructing their faith and now giving voice to their great concerns. And this is why Paul says many. Many, this has happened, this is common. Now, verse 19, Paul goes on to diagnose their condition. Their end is destruction, says Paul. 
Their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame, with mind set on earthly things. This is such an apt description of those who are making their deconstruction so public and even benefiting from it. (laughs) How crazy is that? Paul says they glory in their shame. The very thing that should bring shame to them, they glory in it. It is in direct contrast to believers who are to glory in Christ, their redemption, their redeemer, their savior from sin. Here people are deconstructing their faith and starting to glory in the very sins that Christ has shed his precious blood for. And they glory in the very thing that one day will put them to utter shame. Hmm. What a terrible prospect that is. Paul begins his list with, their end is destruction. This group might even well be those opponents that is referred to in chapter 1, verse 27 to 30, when he called the church to unity in the gospel and wrote this, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. It might even be the same group of people. But what is clear from our context as well as the first century is that the world heralds these people and puts them on a pedestal to use them against the Christian faith they once defended. Do you know that? The world loves these stories. But let me tell you, as someone who was once an atheist, the people of the world do not respect them. No traitor is respected, even if they are welcomed and used by the opposing army. Traitors are not respected. There is great shame in being a traitor, even if there is temporary gain in the protection and finances that's offered by it. This is why Paul wrote, Their God is their belly, and they have minds set on earthly things. They love the temporary gains and comfort the world so gladly offers in exchange for their vicious attacks on the Christian faith, but they don't gain respect or honor. (laughs) They glory in their shame. It would have been better if they were quiet in their retreat, but that they even turn this into a profit for them and thereby seek honor from the world is unfortunate. It's crazy. But the world can see through the charade. Let me tell you that. And they might receive temporary applause, but the world sees right through it. I remember watching a TED talk by Josh Harris. We asked a question to the audience. Whether admitting that you're wrong is weakness or strength? <laughs> and everyone goes, strength, strength, strength. Of course, they applaud. What is he doing? He's talking about himself. Look at how strong I am. Look how powerful I am. You see, I have, I have honor. Look at me. I can admit that I'm wrong. I'm strong. That is not humility. That is the essence of pride, taking the thing that it once flourished in and turning it into further gain financially. 
his own book, turning it, going totally against it now, but making that great profit out of this. <laughs> it's crazy. And one day, they will be utterly put to shame, and whatever honor and comforts they have temporarily received will return to shame and deep sorrow and anguish. Hmm. Their end is destruction. Paul warns the believers, be careful of those whose walk, or in other words, their conduct, reflect this type of vicious and vocal assault against the faith they once held dear and defended. Be careful. Be careful. It might be put together with eloquence, false sense of humility, wanting to be transparent, wanting truth to prevail, and yet behind it is the serpent's lie that God really say. How can we know them? Gordon Fee, the commentator on this passage, points out that their God is their belly is echoed another passage found in Romans 16, verse 17 to 20, where Paul writes this. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. Avoid them. Don't give them an ear. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. The word translated appetites here is the same word used for belly in our text and contrasts obedience to Christ with their own personal agendas and desires. Don't be swayed. Be careful of traitors. But then Paul continues, For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. And then he ends with these words, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. And this is where we come to next in our passage. Help is on the way. (laughs) Careful of traitors, but help is on the way. Help is on the way. I'm sure many of you have been watching the invasion of Ukraine by Russia over this past week with great interest. If you have kept up with the news, one thing has become clear. Ukrainians are willing to stand against the Russians. But they also would like to know that help is on the way. They are immensely overpowered. When offered to be evacuated by the U.S., the Ukrainian president responded with these words, The fight is here. I need ammunition, not a ride. But the reason that Ukraine has so desperately tried to join the NATO alliance is so that they would receive more than ammunition in the event of aggression from Russia. See, that's what they wanted, an alliance with NATO. Were they part of NATO... They would have had the defense of all those countries which belong to NATO, you see, relationship. This is what the president of Lithuania recently said about the presence of U.S. soldiers deployed to their country. He said this, we are not afraid that somebody might invade us, 
But the signal that U.S. soldiers are with us and that other allies from Canadians to Europeans are with us is a good signal to Putin. Don't mess with us. NATO has got twice, three times the firepower of Russia. So it's a good people to have alliance with. Now, this is true of the battle-ridden church of the Lord Jesus Christ. (laughs) When faced with the onslaught from the world around us and traitors from within our midst, we too need to know that help is on the way. This will give us courage to stand and fight. To remain on the battlefield, to know the fight is here. To know that our allies stand with us, to know that the defenses are coming. And this is where Paul goes to in verse 20. He says it. But our citizenship, says Paul, is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. You see that? The greatest omnipotent being in all the world, he is on your side. And he will subject all things to himself. And then by that very power where he subjects all things to himself, he's going to transform your body to be like his. You ever want to be a G.I. Joe? (laughs) Navy SEAL? American Ranger? Or maybe just Rambo? You know? How about a transformed body that transcends all of that? No sin. No subjection to to death. No sickness. No COVID. No fear. That's the destiny of all true believers. The fact that we have an alliance with the greatest military presence in the entire universe should give Christians courage to stand in the present. This is why Paul will say in 4 verse 1, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for my joy and crown, stand firm, Thus in the Lord, my beloved, stand firm. But notice the great motivating factor. In the present, right now in this life, in this present world, we have to imitate our Lord and those who follow his example closely. We have to imitate it. And we do so imperfectly. We looked at that last week. We do so two weeks ago. We do so imperfectly. We have to do so by waging war against our personal passions and desires that are at odds with his kingdom. We have to wage war against the world and its constant temptations. And there are real temptations. That's why, in a great sense, I do understand. I understand why someone like Josh Harris walks away because the temptations are real. They really are. The pressures are there. I want to live a life just free from all these rules and from the feeling of guilt all the time. And sometimes you find freedom in the world, but that's just very brief. So the temptations are real. You've got to understand who you are in Christ. Battle is raging on and on and on and can so discourage the believer. But when Christ returns, when our Savior finally descends to rescue us from our present conflicts, He will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body. If that's not a good reason to continue and press on, I don't know what is. No longer do we have to fight against sin and temptation, imperfectly, sometimes triumphing and other times failing. The cycles which are so discouraging in the present that at times bring us to the point of despair and giving up. 
But the goal or the end of the believer is not destruction. It's glory. Glory. It's victory. Guaranteed victory. It is honor and not shame. And while we strive in the present, we must continue to wage a war against the flesh, the world, and the devil and persevere in the face of trial and sorrow. We are called to this. But we must do so keeping our eyes on the reward of our heavenly citizenship, heavenly bodies, heavenly reward, heavenly crowns. We will no longer need to imitate, but we will be like our Lord. What will this be like? I like to imagine what it will be like one day to be in heaven. I don't know if you do. I don't know if I told you this before. I, I sat once for six hours in my chair when I was training for ministry just to think about what it will be like in heaven. I have a vivid imagination. So, and, you know, it's so impossible. But think about it. The exploits we can do with bodies that are not hindered by sin and weighing us down. And we have eternity, eternity upon eternity upon eternity to just explore the universe, to be able to travel uninhibited, to be able to worship uninhibited. Imagine what we will accomplish with our full minds, our full brains, which apparently we're using, what, less than 10%, 6% of at the present? Full capacity, that's what we created for, full capacity, taking the glory of God and to know Him and understand Him for all eternity. Imagine what that would be like, glorious bodies. We'll have no end in discovering what God is like and studying theology, just studying Him and His creation and seeing the beauties of it and perhaps even going from planet to planet. Who knows the possibilities? But the prize will be that we will be with the Lord. Hmm. We'll be with Him and He'll wipe away our tears. Can you imagine the moment that we, when we die in this present life and our present pathetic little bodies go into the ground and become dust and we and our souls ascend to be with Him temporarily and we have the joys of heaven right over there and we get up there into heaven and He says, it's not yet this is not yet the time. Time is coming. You will see. Things will change. And that day of resurrection when we get are finally raised and we get a new body. Can you imagine that? What will we feel like? No more inhibited by, held back by the fallen nature. <laughs> Transformed. Perfection. And Jonathan Edwards has spent many times in contemplation on the subject, and he preached a sermon called Heaven in a World of Love. A magnificent sermon if you want to read the entirety of it. But listen to this excerpt. There are many things in this world that in the general are lovely, but yet are not perfectly free from that which is in the contrary. There are spots in the sun. And there are many men that are most amiable and worthy to be loved, who yet are not without some things that are disagreeable and unlovely. Some humility there. Often there is in good men some defect of temper or character or conduct that mars the excellence of what otherwise would seem most amiable. And even the very best of men are on earth imperfect. But it is not so in heaven. There shall be no pollution or deformity or unamiable a defect of any kind, 
seen in any person or thing, but everyone shall be perfectly pure and perfectly lovely in heaven. That blessed world shall be perfectly bright, without any darkness, perfectly fair, without any spot, perfectly clear, without any cloud. No moral or natural defect shall ever enter there, and there nothing will be seen that is sinful or weak or foolish. Nothing, the nature or aspect of which is coarse or displeasing, or that can offend the most refined taste or the most delicate eye, no string shall there ever vibrate out of tune to cause any jar in the harmony of the music of heaven. And no note be such as to make discord in the anthems of saints and angels. If you have time this afternoon, download that sermon, read it. I want to ask you as we conclude, how is your walk with the Lord? How is it? Are you struggling and failing? Do you feel despondent this morning? Or perhaps this week you've had some triumphs and you're coming excited once again to the worship and you're excited and encouraged to be here. Are you walking closely with someone whose life you want to imitate and whose life imitates Christ? It has to be that. Or do you walk more closely with Google or the mentors you find on YouTube or social media. My conclusion and exhortation is very simple, dear friends. In this world of wars and worries, we need to walk with fellow citizens of heaven from within your own local church. Those who model the conduct of our world to come. Those who show you what godliness is and the struggles against the world, the flesh, and the devil, and how real it is, but yet how to persevere through all of that. You need to find someone you can visit on a weekly, perhaps, if you have time, monthly, if that's all you can do, but on a regular basis. There are many good examples in our church. Younger people, make yourself available to older people. Older people, make yourself available to younger people. We need to bring the generations together. Be careful of traitors, (laughs) secondly. Be careful of those who attempt to make you feel ashamed of being a Christian who once I once believed those things, trust me, it's all nonsense. Because one day they will be put to shame eternally. Don't follow their camp. Don't listen to their voices. Don't be fooled by their clever, manipulative words or their stories that are so appealing. Look at what they're doing. They're making money out of your destruction. Don't give in to it. Surround yourself with good godly mentorship and good wholesome study of God's word. And thirdly, know that help is on the way. If you despair this morning of your circumstances, 
Help is on the way. If you're on the brink of falling away, don't give in. Help is on the way. Even if you've come joyful knowing that tomorrow might bring a totally different circumstance, know this, that help is on the way, and one day you will be perfect. You will be in glory. Your body will be glorified, and you will be with your Lord, and he will wipe away your tears and say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into my Father's rest. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the encouragement we can draw from it. Thank you for the models of those who strive to follow Christ that are around us, still here. Oh, Lord, I pray that you'll give us a sensitive conscience to our sin. That you will help us to pursue and persevere in our fight against sin. That we will look for godly examples in our midst and meet with them. Draw counsel from them and encouragement from their lives. But that we will look at our Lord Jesus Christ and the perfection that he offers and the beauty and glories of heaven that is held out to us who repent and believe and that we would trust, believe, and obey to the glory of God the Father, we pray. Amen.